Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Young at Art, the new arts and culture podcast that puts you in touch with a variety of established names and rising stars from the worlds of art, fashion and interior design who are shaking up the art world and redefining what it means to be a tastemaker today. I'm your host, Harry Stevens, and today we are joined by author and journalist Justine Picardy to speak to us about her new book, Misty Or, a story of courage and couture which came out last September. The book is the first biography ever written about Catherine Dior, Christian Dior's youngest sister and the sibling he was closest to. Piccadilly's account traces Catherine's life and the experiences which shaped her into the example of femininity that Christian Dior was inspired by when setting up his couture house in 1946. The book explores the life of a remarkable woman who overcame intense personal struggle as a result of the Nazi occupation of France, where Catherine was a member of the French resistance and was captured by the Gestapo and put into a concentration camp. Miss Dior is a tale of feminine strength and determination in the face of adversity, and it acts not only as a fascinating biography of Catherine Dior, but also an account of how World War II affected the world of French couture and what beauty came after the horrors of war. When not writing books, Justine Piccadilly is a contributing editor to Harper's Bazaar UK, a magazine that she's held the title of editor-in-chief of. Alongside this, Piccadilly has been a features director for British Vogue and an editor of The Observer magazine. Also, she's been an investigative journalist for The Sunday Times and a columnist for The Telegraph, so we're in the company of a journalism legend today. Justine, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for agreeing to speak to me today. Thank you for having me. I want to begin by asking you about the perfume that the book shares its name with, Miss Dior, one of the most recognisable and popular perfumes in the world. Before I read your book, I had no idea that Catherine Dior was involved in its creation, even to the point today where the rose bushes that she planted are still used in its creation. Can you please tell us how Miss Dior came into being and what it means for the relationship of Christian and Catherine Dior? So Miss Dior was launched at exactly the same time as Christian Dior launched his first, what became known as the New Look Collection um, on the 12th of February, 1947. So almost exactly 75 years ago. And its timing is, is really important because both the, the Couture House, the, the Dior Maison, and the first perfume, Miss Dior, emerge after a time of such darkness and trauma and suffering, really after the ugliness of the Second World War. And what is so radical about Christian Dior's vision, both with this supremely romantic and tender perfume, um, which he called the scent of love, and which was a perfume named in tribute to his younger sister, Catherine, uh, who had been a heroine of the French resistance and who'd been imprisoned in Ravensbrück concentration camp. And indeed to his vision of beauty and femininity and sort of heightened romance in that famous first New Look collection. What's radical about it is to still believe in beauty and 
and romance and magic after the horror of a terrible war which had engulfed the world and indeed had engulfed Christian Dior's own family through the figure of his sister Catherine. That's what's remarkable about Dior's vision. And I think that every great designer who becomes, whose, whose vision lasts, who, who builds something timeless that, you know, that doesn't fade. I mean, most fashion fades quite rapidly in those very unusual figures like Dior, when you see a creation that, that stands the tests of time, I always think there is some powerful emotion being expressed. And you can feel, you can sense that powerful emotion in the Miss Dior perfume and in his first Couture collection and in the Couture collections that followed. How did this story come about, Justine? Where did you find out about the life of Catherine Dior first that made you want to write a book about it? My previous book um, was a biography of Coco Chanel. And it's impossible to write about Coco Chanel, you know, the greatest female fashion designer, um, really, of all time, without learning more about Couture, the world of couture as a, as a whole, and, and Christian Dior in particular. You know, there's a reason that these two great brands remain such colossal figures is because of the, the vision of their founders. And after my Chanel book came out, um, I received a, an invitation from Dior to come and look in their archives in Paris. And it was really, really interesting but there was very little in the archives about Catherine Dior, Christian's younger sister, and really the woman that he loved most in the world, certainly the woman he was closest to. And then slowly over a period of, of years, actually, I discovered more about Catherine um, and the fact that when she was very young, in her early 20s, uh, the, in the early years of the Second World War, she joined the French resistance. She fought very bravely for freedom and liberty. And she was um, captured by the Gestapo in July 1944, tortured. She gave nothing away and in, it, through her silence saved the lives of, of many other people in the French resistance and also saved the life of her brother, Christian, who she was living with at the time. She was deported on the last train out of Paris to Ravensbrück concentration camp, which was Hitler's only concentration camp for women, miraculously survived, returned to Paris in the summer of 1945. And it's then that you see Christian somehow his ambition literally flowering the ambition to create both a perfume and a couture house of his own. And Catherine became a dealer in cut flowers in Paris in the flower market and also cultivated roses um, in the, the family farm, the Dior family farm in Provence. And these roses that she grew were used as the key ingredients for the Miss Dior perfume. And what I was so fascinated by was the relationship 
between brother and sister, between Christiane and Catherine. And the book, it's it's not a straightforward biography of Catherine Dior. It's it's more an exploration of the relationship between Christiane and Catherine, but also what does the romanticized, idealized vision of womanhood in Miss Dior tell us about about the way the world wanted to look after the Second World War. So Mr. Yule becomes a symbol as well as originally inspired by a real woman. And I was just fascinated that nobody had shown really any interest in writing about Catherine and writing about her relationship with Christian. So Christian Dior becomes one of the most famous, not just the most famous fashion designer, in the world after the second at the end of the second world war he becomes one of the most famous men in the world and catherine the woman who has inspired so much of his vision of femininity which changes the way women look from 1947 onwards is completely ignored so what is it about her story that made it apparently either unbearable or impossible for people to talk or write about. And other women like her, who were in the French resistance, who were imprisoned in German concentration camps and whose stories were totally forgotten or silenced really very, very rapidly. It's such an interesting story with her being part of the resistance and, and being ultimately put in, moving across concentration camp to concentration camp. It is, it is harrowing and it is something I definitely wasn't expecting. I picked up the book for the first time. You mentioned there about the importance of roses in Christian and Catherine's life. And you talk about them in the book as well at their family home and how um, from the book right up until the clothing collections that Christian Dior created. I think the most poignant celebration of roses for me is when you mentioned the roses planted at Ravensbrück, the concentration camp, as you mentioned, where Catherine Dior was sent. Can you describe to our listeners what Catherine's involvement was like with the French resistance and how that led to her being put in a concentration camp? So Catherine Dior joined the, a, a unit in the French resistance or a group in the French resistance called F2. And before I started researching this book, I thought of the French resistance as sort of one organization. I didn't realize that it was very, very fragmented and it was made up of a lot of different groups. But the group that Catherine joined, F2, was originally set up by two Polish um, army intelligence officers who'd found themselves behind enemy lines in France after the German invasion of France in 1940. And then they started recruiting um, French people to work with. And they were involved in gathering intelligence and supplying the allies um, in, in London, including British intelligence with really vital intelligence on German troop movements, German plans. And Catherine, joined this group when she met and really fell in love at first sight with one of its earliest French members, who was a man called Hervé de Charbonnerie. And but the reason that she met him was that she'd already undertaken her first act of resistance as a young woman by going to 
get hold of a, a radio. She was li still living in the south of France at this time in Provence. Um, and by going to get a radio, uh, she was showing her willingness to resist because it was to listen to General de Gaulle's banned broadcasts on the BBC. De Gaulle, who was the leader of the Free French in London, uh, a, a, a relatively young um, French general, de Gaulle was the only member really of the, the French armed forces who had not capitulated, who had not embarked on collaboration with the Germans. And he, as the leader of the Free French in London, was doing these secret broadcasts, secret in France, calling on the French to resist. So Catherine became one of a really small number of resistance. Uh, the population of France at this point was 40 million. And when Catherine joined, there were no more than 100,000 active members of the French resistance. So it's a tiny percentage of people that were willing to risk their lives against the Germans. And she operated very successfully um, as both a courier, uh, moving information, transporting reports, and also gathering information. Um, she cycled long distances on her bicycle, um, gathering information, transmitting in information. She would type up reports on a little typewriter that she she kept until the end of her life. Because there were so few people in the French resistance, they were vastly outnumbered by the people in the French population who collaborated. Some just, I would say, did what they needed to to stay alive and others actively participated um, with fascism by betraying their fellow countrymen and, and countrywomen uh, to the Gestapo. And Catherine had the, it was her, her tragedy along with many others that her group was infiltrated by a member of the French Gestapo um, who betrayed Catherine and a number of others. And she was arrested, tortured, um, imprisoned, in a prison first in Paris, then an internment camp in France, and then deported to Ravensbrück. And Paris was liberated by the Allies towards the end of August 1944. And again, this terrible tragedy for Catherine and a number of others was that she was on the last train out of Paris of people being deported to German concentration camps. And very few of those deportees survived. Uh, she was in a group of 400 women um, on this train. There were about 2,000 men who were sent to Buchenwald concentration camp and the vast majority of both the men and the women died in the camps. And Ravensbrück concentration camp where Catherine was sent had women of many different nationalities. There were British women who'd been part of SOE, the British Special Operations Executive who'd been parachuted into France to help the French resistance. There were a couple of Americans who'd been helping, American women who'd been helping the French resistance. There were Polish women, Dutch women. There were a, a few very brave German 
women who had resisted the, the Nazis in Germany and they endured the most terrible conditions. And then many of them like Catherine were used for slave labor as part of a program called extermination through labor whereby they were literally worked to, to, to death in various different camps. And as I say, miraculously, Catherine somehow through probably a combination of, of luck, resilience, physical strength, solidarity with other women, clung on to life and survived this terrible regime and managed to return to France and arrived in Paris at the end of May 1945. Her brother Christian was there to meet her at the train station and such was her terrible emaciation and everything that she'd endured. Its physical effects were such that Christian didn't recognize her at the train station, but she did regain her strength. And I think that one of the ways that she found a way to go on living after enduring such terrible suffering, both physically and psychologically. Um, and she undoubtedly suffered from, from both the physical after effects and the psychological after effects in a form of post-traumatic stress disorder for the rest of her life. But she found a way to make a life for herself, both through her love of her brother, Christian, also her relationship with Hervé, who'd been in the French resistance with her, survived. Um, he, like Christian, had been terribly, you know, he was anguished when she was deported and like many assumed the worst, that she was dead. But their relationship continued and Christian um, gave Catherine a home in his apartment in Paris when she returned. As I say, she, she became um, a dealer in cut flowers in the Paris flower markets and, and then grew fields of, of roses of her own and also jasmine and for a time irises. So the, the beauty of these flowers that became her, her professional life, but also I think gave great meaning to her life really allowed her a way to find some measure of peace and healing. But of course, it's impossible to ever fully recover from the experience of the camps. And, and she, but she lived a long and, and brave life. Um, she lived until the age of 90 and still growing her flowers. You visited some really fascinating and in some cases beautiful places in the course of writing Miss Dior. Is there anywhere that really stands out for you for being so intrinsic for Catherine's story? Yes, it's a series of gardens, I think. So it felt almost as though I was following a, a trail of roses at times. So the garden of, of Christian and Catherine's childhood, they grew up as part of a sort of prosperous um, haute bourgeois family. Their father was an industrialist who'd made his, it had inherited the, his family's fertilizer business. And it's interesting that originally the Dior family 
made their money in the 19th century in fertilizer and but really foul smelling <laughs> fertilizer <laughs> from guano which is um penguin poo is the is the main ingredient and they'd grown up um in a in a sort of substantial belle epoque villa overlooking the english channel on the coast of normandy and their mother madeleine had a real love of of gardening of roses and had created a very beautiful garden on a very unpromising place, which is a granite cliff top um, swept by, by storms and winds from the sea. But uh, it's a beautiful garden. And I went there when I was researching the book and Christian and Catherine both inherited their mother's love of gardening. And the rose garden there is, is very, very evocative indeed. And then, the, the, the roses in the garden, their, their father lost all his money in the aftermath of the Wall Street crash and, and the Dior family suffered terribly. So their father lost all of his money. Um, their mother died of septicemia at the age of 51 when Catherine was just 13 years old. One brother developed schizophrenia and was institutionalized and never recovered. And the oldest brother who'd fought in the First World War um, suffered from shell shock and became very estranged from the rest of the family. So this family went from a kind of gilded life in the early years of the 20th century before the First World War to losing everything. But Christian and Catherine's father, Morris, bought a tiny little farmhouse with some surrounding fields in the rose growing area of Provence. And I went there too while I was researching the book and I went during the harvest of the May roses. And it's a very beautiful place, very remote, quite wild, um, but it, it's just enchantingly beautiful. And then as you mentioned, I. I was so astonished to discover a rose garden at Ravensbrook. And Ravensbrook, very few people go to Ravensbrook as visitors. It's not like, it's not a kind of memorial site in the same way that Auschwitz is, for example. And I went on two occasions. The first time was in the middle of winter um, and the next was in the, the following June in the summer. But when I went for the first time in, in midwinter, it's 80 miles north of Berlin and it is freezing cold in the winter. And I wandered around this, this vast site um, and you know, just tried to, to take in the enormity of the evil that had been enacted there. And I went through the archives at Ravensbrook to discover more about Catherine and her companions. Um, but then as I was wandering through this, this, this immense area, I discovered to my surprise, a rose garden and it had been planted at the end of the war by um, some women who'd survived Ravensbrook and they had returned there to plant roses in memory of the women who had not survived, their friends, their sisters, their mothers, their daughters. And 
another member of the French resistance um, who also uh, bred roses had developed a rose that could survive these very harsh winters um, in Northern Germany. And she called the rose resurrection. So these roses, some of which were in bloom when I went in winter, were growing on the site, had been planted on the site of a mass grave beside the crematorium at Ravensbrook and next to where the gas chamber had been. And it's a living symbol. I mean, it's more than a symbol, a, a rose, a growing living rose is this extraordinary expression of resilience and renewal and a, a determination to never forget that these lives of all those thousands of women who died at Ravensbrook, their lives, they live on in the form of these roses. And it's one of the most remarkable, memorable, unforgettable places I've ever been to in, in my life. Again, um, Christian Dior's own very beautiful rose garden um, in his home in Provence. He, he lived with Catherine in Paris and then again in um, their father's farmhouse in Provence. And after their father died in 1946, he left the farm to Catherine. And then in 1950, Christian um, bought and restored a, a beautiful old house very close to, to where Catherine lived and where Catherine farmed roses. And it's called La Col Noire. And it's, it's owned by Dior, the company, today. And I went and, and spent some time writing there while I was writing the book. And, it, and Christian Dior created an exquisitely beautiful rose garden there and also planted many meadows of roses. And these roses are also still used in the making of Miss Dior, just as Catherine's own fields of roses still are too. And that again is a, a symbolic and emblematic of so much hope because to plant a meadow of roses or to make a to create a rose garden is an expression of hope in the future and you see that both Christiane and Catherine do this with their rose gardens in a in a wonderful life-affirming way. I feel that this story of sisterly love and lifelong affection that Catherine had for Christian has parallels in your own life and the love that you have for your sister Ruth, who sadly died 25 years ago this year. Justine, how did your own experience of sisterhood influence the way you approached this story? Well, my younger sister Ruth, um, who was a couple of years younger than me, she was was, is my beloved sister. I mean, when somebody dies, you don't stop loving them. And she was also my best friend. And she was also the person really that I first wrote for and with. We used to create little, when we were very small children and we carried on doing it, but sort of little magazines and books together. So we would be each other's, you know, editors, readers. We would make these things together. And then um, Ruth, like me, became a journalist. And when she was diagnosed with terminal breast cancer, she wrote a column for, for the magazine I was editing at the time, The Observer 
magazine um, that then became a book called Before I Say Goodbye. And I think that through my experience of loving my sister, um, to me, sort of sisterliness and solidarity is really at the heart of what I've always tried to do, both as a writer and as an editor. And it's, I still write for my sister. She's still, you know, the reader in my mind. And I think that, as I say, what I also learned from the terrible experience of her death, she died much too young at, at the age of, of 33, um, when her children, she had twins who were, who were still babies, that love and loss are inextricably linked but they are these common threads of what makes us human. They are, it is the shared fabric of, of all our lives. And of course, that's relevant to everything that I've written as a writer. But I think that these very profound emotions are too often really excluded when people perhaps write about the world of fashion. You know, fashion is sometimes portrayed as if it's all polish, you know, all these beautiful surfaces. Whereas I think that beautiful surfaces, perhaps at their most beautiful, are because one can recognize the hidden depths that lie beneath. And I think if you look at the life of, say, Coco Chanel, who suffered great loss from childhood onwards, or of Christian Dior, whose life's relatively short life, I mean, he died at the, at the age of 52 um, in 1957. He'd lived through two world wars, um, the, the death of his, his mother, uh, the traumatic experience of his sister. He'd lived through the Wall Street crash, the Great Depression. Many of his friends um, died in those wars. And I think that, you know, his greatness as a designer emerges out of his own profound understanding of, of love and indeed of loss. In the book, you tell the story of how in 1919, Christian Dior was at a bazaar near his home and he was told by a fortune teller that women are lucky for you and through them you will achieve success. How influential do you think Catherine was to Christian Dior's success as a couturier? I think that, that Catherine was absolutely integral to his success. And the reason I, I say this um, is that when they first lived in Paris together in the late 1930s, um, and she was just sort of 18 or 19 at the time, and he was beginning his career as a freelance designer, and he got her a, a job in a what was called a maison de mode, um, sort of selling accessories and and hats and gloves. Uh, and she was his first model for his earliest design. So clearly, she was part of of that vision. But I think that although he continued to work for other couturiers, um, both just before war broke out and then during the Second World War, he, he worked for Lucien Lelong. It's not until 
Catherine survives and returns from Ravensbrook, that Christian, having really shown no ambition to set up a couture house of his own, suddenly, with her return, seems to find this, this ambition, this creative ambition within him to express some part of the truest part of himself through this creative expression of, of perfume and couture. And I'm not sure, certainly the timing would suggest that her return and her presence was very important, but also his first collection, which was christened The New Look by Carmel Snow, the then editor of Harper's Bazaar. In fact, he called it La Corolle and the, cor the Corolle, the Corolla is part of a, of a flower. Um, it's the inner, part of the flower surrounded by a whirl of petals. And he said he'd created clothes for a flower woman. And that's always been in interpreted as a sort of rather romanticized, dreamy vision of a flower woman. And of course, Misty Orr to a degree is a romanticized, idealized vision of a flower girl. But Catherine herself was a real flower woman who was living with him in Paris getting up at four o'clock every morning to go to the flower market, returning with her arms full of flowers, those flowers that filled 30 Avenue Montaigne uh, when he did his first show there in his own couture salon, those flowers would have been supplied by Catherine and she was growing roses. She was the flower woman who was growing roses. And in that sense, as the kind of quintessential archetypal flower woman, she is integral to his creative expression as one of the greatest couturiers of all time. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to speak to you today, Justine, and, and hear your beautiful story of Catherine's life. Thank you for bringing alive the story of one of the most, I think, overlooked figures and unknown figures in the life of Christian Dior. I've, I've learned so much reading your book and, and talking to you today. I think, I hope that people who've listened today and who've read your book will will look at roses in a different way now and see this bond of sisterhood and this this love of that family can bring and I hope that fills us both as we go our, our daily life after this thank you so much that was a pleasure thank to talk you. to you thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of young at art if you want to find out more about the podcast and see who will be joining us for next week's episode, please follow us on Instagram at Young at Art Podcast, where you will get updates and inspiration to keep you going until the next episode. A huge thank you for this week's guest for joining us and being with me today. If you want to know more about them and what they do, please look at the show notes of this episode for more information and links. If you liked what you heard today, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and press the notification button so that you will be notified when a new episode goes live. And finally, a huge thank you to Beatrice Ross for drawing the portrait of me for the cover art, as well as creating our logo. You can follow her at Beatrice Alice Ross. And also thank you to Maggie Talabart for creating our intro and outro music. You can follow her at Maggie underscore Talabart on Instagram. Thank you again for listening to this week's episode, and I hope you'll be joining us for the next one.